You're listening to ReachMD. This episode of Living Room titled Imaging Considerations in Diagnosing GCA is sponsored by Novartis U.S. Clinical Development and Medical Affairs. The host and speaker have been compensated for their time. This program is intended for healthcare professionals. Here's your host, Dr. Anisha Dua. The American College of Rheumatology Vasculitis Foundation recently published recommendations for the management of giant cell arteritis. They advise performing a temporal artery biopsy to make the diagnosis. But the European Alliance of Associations for Rheumatology, or EULAR, recommends using ultrasound. This is ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Anisha Dua. Joining me to discuss imaging considerations in diagnosing GCA is Dr. Mike Putman. Dr. Putman is an assistant professor of medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Putman, thanks so much for being here today to talk about this important topic. Thanks for having me. I love controversies in management, so pitting EULAR against ACR is we're off to a great start. I agree. So with that, let's first talk about how ultrasound is used to diagnose GCA. What are some of the specific features we're looking for with ultrasound? Yeah, it's a great question, and it really depends on who and where for how it's used. So this started quite a while back. There was a New England Journal paper from Wolfgang Schmidt about using ultrasound to identify vascular inflammation of the temporal arteries. And the finding that he identified, and that we still use today, it's one of the OMRAC response criteria for this, is a halo sign, which looks sort of like a halo, but the halo is created by a red dot in the middle of the vessel, which is pulsating, surrounded by a dark ring. And that ring is darker and thicker and less compressible than a normal temporal artery would be. And so that correlates to the vascular inflammation that we see on biopsy. And a smaller lumen correlates to intimal hyperplasia that we would see on vascular biopsy. And so it's a very appealing modality because you can see some of the same features, but you don't need to operate or take the vessel out. What I said depends on who and where, because certainly abroad and definitely a lot of the European practitioners are doing more comprehensive ultrasound evaluations. Now, early on, we performed a big study where people were blinded and it's called the TABL study. It's actually a very interesting paper. And the performance characteristics of ultrasound were kind of mediocre. It increases the chances of GCA by about 15% if positive. But one of the critiques of that was that the folks who did it weren't experts in the field, and they were only looking at these temporal arteries. So a lot of folks will also look at the axillary arteries. And then some will even go and do the carotids and the vertebrals and the occipitals and all these tiny little arteries. And as you do that, you tend to notice more your yield goes up, and the expertise also tends to go up as people spend more and more time looking at those arteries. So the findings vary by who's doing it and how many times and how expert they are on the exam. Perfect. Thank you. So I know you have a little bit of experience here. So just thinking about ultrasound, why do you think ULAR recommends the use of ultrasound? I know you mentioned you don't have to go in there and do a surgery, but they recommend it as the first-line diagnostic tool. Do you think there are any drawbacks to that? And tell me a little bit about your thoughts on it. I kind of gave the table data, which was sort of short on ultrasound. But more recently, there was a really cool paper in Lancet Rheumatology that looked at ultrasound done by experts. And the positive likelihood ratios, which kind of affects how much it increases the chances of disease, were far more impressive and pointed towards a modality that could really, in many cases, sort of clinch the diagnosis or at least push you to a threshold where you would know to treat. 
And they did that with a modality that was largely very accessible. So especially abroad, but increasingly in the United States, people are doing fast track clinics. So for me, when I meet a person with suspected GCA, I take their history and then I do the ultrasound at the bedside immediately. I show the patient exactly what I'm seeing, what I'm finding. And you know, I think it really helps them understand the disease process. And it's very accessible. It's right there immediately. There's no delays while we wait. Another benefit would be that you spare them a procedure, so there's no procedural complications, and then you can keep the artery. <laughs> so if you don't take it out, it can be useful in the future if people are flaring. You asked about drawbacks as well. The drawbacks are that there's a huge learning curve to this. I've done over 50 now, and I'm increasingly confident, but it takes a lot of practice to really feel like you know what you're doing and identify more subtle findings. And I think that especially in the U.S. context, where it's not clear how we're going to train all 5,000 rheumatologists to do this, there's a concern that rolling it out in mass would lead to maybe overconfidence, underdiagnosis, issues like that. Given this information, what kind of role do you think ultrasound might play in fast-track clinics? How do you think it might help in terms of risk stratification for patients? Yeah, I think you said the critical word, which is risk stratification. The yeah. British Society for Rheumatology put out a really nice little guideline document and a flow chart. And even there, where the folks there are quite confident of ultrasound, they say that for people who have a low pretest probability, so you really think this person doesn't have giant cellulitis, a negative ultrasound would be quite useful. For people with a high pretest probability, so you really think this patient does have giant cellulitis, a positive ultrasound would be quite useful. And then there's all these people in the middle where you shouldn't use ultrasound, in my opinion, to determine the diagnosis. And so that's kind of how I'm using it, where if it is parsimonious with a high or low clinical suspicion, then I think it's very helpful and can save people biopsies and unnecessary steroids. But in the middle, it's kind of like you said, a risk stratification where you say, well, you're kind of in the middle and now you have a positive ultrasound. So I think I'm going to confirm that with a biopsy or be more inclined to be giving steroids up front to that patient. And so I think that using it as a way to inform subsequent testing and to risk stratify people is the best role for it. Right Absolutely. Now. I completely agree. So we spoke a little bit about the role that ultrasound plays in diagnosing GCA, but let's shift over to some other imaging modalities that can evaluate large vessel involvement in GCA. So can you tell me about how you're incorporating non-invasive imaging kind of into your diagnostic algorithm and what type are you using up front? Yeah, I think that this is a very evolving part of the field. I credit the BSR guidelines for kind of an interesting algorithm. There's a really nice paper by the Mayo Group where they looked at if you have more suspected large vessel disease, instead of going this temporal artery route, you're going to go this large vessel imaging route. And I do practice that myself. I mean, for people who have any signs of large vessel disease, I emphasize that because what are you doing taking someone's temporal artery if they have limb claudication and a loud vascular brewery. I mean, you get the angiography. Now, in the past, we did actual conventional angiography, and that's really not done today. So I think there's three modalities that people need to know about. There's MR angiogram, CT angiogram, and then PET scans. And each of them have their own little quirks. And my rule is that whichever one you order, it'll definitely be the one your radiologist didn't want you to do. So <laughs> you should probably time travel so you know what's correct. But as a general rule, CT angiogram is the quickest. It's a little bit better at looking at vessels. And it may be marginally cheaper, but there's a contrast risk, an allergy risk. MR angiogram has less of those risks, but it takes longer. It's a little hard for patients to sit through. And you can't use it at all in people who have bad kidney disease. 
And then CT scan or PET CT is really a fascinating modality, but there's some accessibility issues. It's quite hard to get one in an expeditious manner. And then you get a whole lot of stuff. I mean, you PET scan somebody and you see all kinds of things you're going to have to figure out. And so there's also the possibility of overdiagnosis with a PET CT, which I think can be quite challenging. Yeah, absolutely. So before we close, do you have any final thoughts or takeaways you want to share with our audience? You know, the first thing is really, I think that understanding your diagnostic modalities is really important. So I love ultrasound. I think it has a very important role in giant sarditis diagnosis and increasingly in management. But you need to know the limitations of the study and know your own limitations if you're planning to do this yourself. I think that if there's one thing we're not doing enough, it's recognizing large vessel involvement. And so if you have not screened many of the patients you've seen recently for GCA for large vessel involvement, you're missing some. And so I I really encourage people to work on making sure that you're not missing these presentations where you'll come in with some GCA features, but less cranial disease. Maybe their inflammatory markers are normal, but they have a lot of convincing vascular findings. You need to really be ready to think outside of the cranial box. And lastly, for all of this, I just think there's a lot of value to knowing your colleagues. So I've been kind of flippant about which imaging modality, but the truth is that a lot of departments are really good at something. And so if your department's just an expert at MR angiogram, then maybe that's what you should be reaching for. And you can develop protocols. I mean, I've developed protocols with my group where I have a specific order that I can use to try and get the imaging slides that I need to see. And so I think that working with your folks to make sure that you're giving the best care can be really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, of course, like you mentioned, comparing apples to apples, trying to stay consistent with what type of modality you're using so you can make better comparisons, make those decisions. I think you've touched on some of the most important points in terms of diagnosing and using different imaging modalities. There's no one perfect way to do it, and everything adds its own little piece of information or value. So thank you for that great discussion on GCA and imaging. And I want to thank you, Dr. Putman, for helping us better understand the role of imaging in diagnosing GCA. It was great talking with you today, as always. And I look forward to discussing how we can actually monitor these patients after we've made a diagnosis, which is sometimes really the hardest part. So I look forward to that. Wow, this is a lot of fun. Thank you for having me back. It's always good to get to chat and think about controversies and imaging of giant sloteritis. So thanks for having me and looking forward to talking again soon. This industry podcast was sponsored by Novartis U.S. Clinical Development and Medical Affairs. If you missed any part of this discussion or to find others in this series, visit reachmd.com slash living room. This is ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.